Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tej Talks. Uh, on today's show, I have my good friend Dee Ludlow with me from the 5am Club, um, and he's, of course, a property investor as well. We are talking about the market, so where he thinks we're headed, depression, recession, crash, all of these funky words, hyperinflation. We talk about GDP and debt ratio. Yeah, we, we get a bit deep about, about the economy. So if you're starting in property now or you're continuing in property, but you're unsure about where to go or what the market's saying to you, definitely have a listen to this. It's, it was recorded very recently and it is very current. Uh, and I think it's important to listen um, to people who really do their research into the market and to make sure you're making a safe investment uh, and to consider things on the whole because it is an investment as well as being property. We also talk about Dee's property journey and how he's making this switch from, you know, sub 100, sub 150k assets, buy to lets to kind of the higher end because of the cash flow and rent that it generates is the same. No, sorry, it's a lot better, but the work is the same as the kind of sub 100k properties that we both buy. Uh, we also invest in similar areas as well. So here we go. <laughs> Mr. D. Ludlow, um, GQ model. Serial entrepreneur, property investor, businessman, um, friend. Welcome. Welcome to the Tesh Talks podcast. Thank you, Tesh. Lovely intro as well. <laughs> you know, I can't believe it's taken this long to to get you on the podcast. I think because I came on yours, I just assumed, oh, yeah, Dee's been on mine. But then, you know, when we kind of spoke in more detail about what you've done in property, which I didn't realize, um, I was like, hold on a minute. Like, this is something to talk about. And of course, you love the market and reading into it and all that's happening a lot more than I would say most investors do. So I'm really keen to extract that from you as well, as well as your property journey, because, you know, we're in a an interesting place um, in the property market, as you know. But before we get into that, who was D. Ludlow before he got into property? So how far do you want me to go back? Uh, ooh, uh, <laughs> I think you're, you're like an adult, aren't you? Now? I always think you're like 22, like, but you're actually fully like... You're grown, isn't it? Um, yeah. Go back like five years, gone. So five years ago, um, I was experimenting many different businesses. Um, business has always intrigued me, and you know I've never been scared of failure. You know I feel that if you fail, there's always room to grow. So I was doing um, about supplement shops, uh, hair uh, barbers. Um, I was actually in the health food industry. So five years ago, I was aiming to become the biggest health healthy food shop chain in the UK. So I had it set up with uh, now uh, <laughs> Into has gone into administration, but we was talking to Into and they was basically planning on going into many shopping centers around the UK. So that's where I was five years ago. Didn't um, go as planned, but yeah, that's where there's room to grow, see Tesh? Mm, <laughs> so that's why I, I was. I didn't even know you did that. Okay. Hmm. Mm. And then what led you from, you know, that business and other kind of experiments to then kind of quite solidly get into property? So when I was about 16, my dad took me on a rich dad, poor dad seminar. Um, and it, it did open my eyes back then. You could, you know, they was talking about uh, house deposits on credit cards and stuff you can't do anymore. So, uh, you know, <laughs> um, 
but I, it was always in the back of my mind where it was, you know, I'm going to go into real estate at one point and I never actioned it. You know, I was always interested in other things. Um, and it got to a stage where after the back of, uh, my previous business that didn't go to plan, you know, I was like, okay, time's getting on now. I need to do something that I really enjoy and uh, properly. It's always something I've been interested in. So um, as I've always been interested in the market, so I just thought, right, it's about, it's time I take action. So yeah, I did. And what was your first ever property deal? First property deal was a three bed buy to let in the Welsh Valleys, um, which you know very well. And uh, um, do, do you want numbers? Yeah, let's go for it. So purchase price price was 52K, uh, refurb was 23K, and uh, I had it actually revalued at 115K. I put 115K in um, as, you know, just in case the value was a little conservative and downvalued me a little bit. And uh, um, yeah, managed to get a whole 115K, pulled out 86K. So managed to pull out more money than I expected. So as that was my first deal, as you can imagine, um, that was it. <laughs> Foot on the accelerator. I was like, I want to do more of these. <laughs> Damn. And that, that 23K is at least, you know, in, in where we invest and buy to, in buy-to-let land, that's that's quite a substantial refurb, um, especially for your first property. How did you know what to do and how, like how to get it right so i actually budgeted 15 um so <laughs> just, just a little bit over there <laughs> um i had a few issues um with a build team on my uh, first deal and um i suppose if the the valuation didn't come in where it did maybe i would have had a different outlook you know i, I would never have given up but um it gave me a lot more confidence going forward, but the things did go wrong with the build team and it went well over budget. Luckily enough, um, bought it for a, a decent uh, price. So it sort of allowed for it, but yeah, I spent a lot more than I wanted to. So yeah, my initial um, budget of 15K, as you could see, um, <laughs> naive and well out. <laughs> <laughs> so let's delve into those problems because most property investors, you know, if you say what's the most challenging part of your business often it is the refurb it's the builders um and builders can really make or break as you've kind of shown here with the figures your deal um and your sanity so what went wrong with that build team and then i guess from that what did you learn that you don't do today or do today um i think that i was trying to haggle everything so they was coming in and i didn't have a great deal of knowledge on you know how much things really cost when it comes to a refurb. And I was trying to take the sort of professional property investor route that I learned from books and podcasts and stuff that didn't quite work in the Welsh Valleys. And they looked at it as sort of arrogant. Um, so I was trying to haggle everything and I ended up getting not a great build team in place and things started to go wrong. And then there was a lot of um, disagreements over money and, and time. And I felt they didn't really value the job. So um, I ended up paying twice pretty much for quite a lot of stuff. Um, so, you know, it's always good to try and stick to budget. But sometimes I, you know, I'd rather guess somebody in that is going to complete the job and get the job done rather than argue so much over price. Yeah, I think, you know, what? there's there's two points there. One is about haggling with builders. Now, 
contrary to popular belief and will shock everyone i don't really haggle with my builders um as long as they give me a breakdown and i understand it and i'm like cool that makes sense i won't haggle if it's a new builder i potentially will on the first one um but like i just i accept it because i know that's how much it takes and that's how much it costs and the second thing i actually learned from you is how you talk to builders so could you give like the listeners an example maybe of where you thought like maybe you were sounding arrogant or not right and what you should stay should say instead because you and me have had this conversation yeah so i i got to the stage where it was like i was listening to um like i said podcasts and books i've read so the approach i was taking was look i'm a professional property investor um you need to take me serious and you know but you've got to think these builders do this day in day out and especially especially when you use experienced ones they've seen everyone <laughs> they've they've met every type of property investor or you know <laughs> there is to meet so when you're taking that sort of approach they can, i think they can see through um, the lack of knowledge when it comes to the refurb. So where I took that sort of arrogant approach, I think they took it for granted and they seen it as me being naive. And yeah, when when I started taking a more humble humble approach and looking at them as more of a not not get not getting too close that we're friends, but to the to the level of like, look, okay, cool, we're, we're we're cool, and you know, you tell me like you just mentioned, let me understand it. And then I'll give you a little bit more of a free reign on the project. Um, if I understand what you're doing and that you build a sort of a trust. So for me, it was, yeah, the, the communication between me and the build team opposed to me dictating. And I think it's quite easy to become a dictator because you're the one who's investing the money in the project and you're looking at it like they're ideally they're working for you. You know, that's how it is. So I think if it's, it's a difference in dictating and managing and I was doing a lot more dictating on the first one. And now I, I try to just manage manage it from afar and manage a project manager who takes over the refurb. I think it works a lot better because, you know, I'm, I'm okay to ask questions. If I ask the project manager a question of something that I don't quite understand, he's happy to answer it because I'm not acting like I knew, know things that I don't. Whereas before I was pretending that I knew things that I didn't. And then there was a lack of communication and it just didn't work. Yeah, and I think it's easy to listen to a certain certain sources who tell you to behave in that kind of way. And actually, it had the opposite effect. You, know, you were being sort of confident, dictating, arrogant, whatever you want to call it, to seem more professional and then take you more seriously. But they did the total opposite. So like, sometimes it's just that like being humble. And another thing you taught me, like which was really something I am not good at for myself is like praising them so it might be just a plastered wall and they've done they've done thousands of plastered walls in their lifetime but for you to say damn mate that looks smooth or to feel it and say wow this is a really good job you did all of this in a day that can make such a huge difference to how they perceive you how they talk about you down the pub and the discounts and the free work you'll get in return have you kind of felt that as well by being really like nice and praising them yeah, I think when something when somebody does something that is good, I think it's quite important that, you know, you show them that you value them as whatever it is they do. And um, I think that when you feel valued, you're willing to do more for somebody. And, you know, I know it's I think dealing with um, tradesmen as a whole is kind of just sales. <laughs> so if you've been in a sales background, 
um, as bad as it sounds, you know, that's just the way I think you need to handle them because before you hit that sort of friendship level, so, so to say. So, you know, you need to is, yeah, it's just the way I think, you know how it is. People like to feel valued. People like to feel appreciated. So if, if you show some of it, then they're willing to do more for you. Yeah. And I think, you know, the difference is when someone's working for you, which they technically are, or they're working with you, and it changes the language. Like I never say to my builder, you're working for me. What the hell are you doing? Or I like, I'll always phrase any language around we're working together. You're working with me. And it means nothing. Like, <clears throat> you know, I don't care if it's with or for, you know, whatever. But it's the words you choose to use with them, which makes a big difference. So I think that's a really important lesson. And actually, I don't think it's a lesson that anyone on this podcast has shared before. Um, and it's only one that I only learned I don't know when did we when did we speak about it four or five months ago maybe um and it, it came from getting a bad reaction to it and you being blunt and saying yeah this is kind of yeah this is how it is so that first deal obviously had it had its problems but incredible valuation what did you do from there did you say right I want 10 more of these let's go get them yeah so initially that's exactly what I wanted to do <laughs> <laughs> so um I did end up buying quite a few on the same street um in the same area you're mayor of the area aren't you know i heard i saw you wearing the garland and i saw you with the scepter like yeah i'm getting close <laughs> um yeah so that's what my initial plan was to do just so i could use my own um purchases as comparables um it's made me it's sort of given me the opposite effect now um so since i have been doing that um I've sort of decided to move away from the area because, you know, I don't like to put, it's the same as when investing as a whole, I don't believe someone should invest in just, in just one asset class if you're an investor. And that's, and I basically, this, that's what I sort of live by, but I was doing it in property. I kept buying in the same area, um, which was great for looking at um, the end valuations. But if something goes wrong in that specific area or you get a bad name from one tenant or anything, uh, it sort of could be a knock-on effect and a domino effect. So I, I decided to look in other areas. And as you know, I've changed my whole approach to um, investing in property. If you put COVID aside, I just decided to change the whole approach anyway. Whereas at first, I wanted to buy as many houses as I could in such a short space of time. Now I'm looking for more valuable uh, assets rather than volume. I was, I think. It was ego at the start. I just wanted to, you know, I think ego gets the better of us at times. <laughs> yeah. So then let, let's talk. So how many properties did you buy in what time frame? Um, I think it was eight in around 10 months. Um, I did have another four that was basically offer accepted, waiting to sort of go through. Um, they're still on the fence at the moment. And I'm in a position where I'm deciding what to do. But yeah, so I, I bought quite a few in such a sort of short space of time, but that my only issue was, I think f one, two, three, five, five of them was in the same street. <laughs> that's, that's like, it's just crazy to say, like, it's so cool as well to like own almost the whole street, but like, okay. So you and me had a similar kind of uh, approach. Um, and then we both bought lots of houses in a short period of time. We both own about the same amount, same prop portfolio value, same sort of rent. We have a very similar portfolio. Um, and again, we had this discussion as well. Why do you want to now go to more expensive assets, which arguably could have a lower yield, maybe the same return on cash left in, maybe. Um, 
why do you want to go let's 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 say both of us have maybe done sub 150k sub 100k purchases what makes you now want to go above that or above 100 so i think uh, if i can in, invest in more i don't know higher value areas um for one i have i feel that i'd have a better choice of tenants two um what i've looked at when i'm looking at numbers is when i look at, at a higher value house sometimes it may be double the amount of money that goes into the deal but i, I was noticing it's in some of these areas i was getting double the cash flow so i'm doing the same work for double the cash flow so me buying two to three houses i could get the same cash flow from one which one of the houses i bought in a better area that's exactly what happened i'm literally getting three and a half times from that property than i am from one of my others in the welsh valleys so for me and down the line i feel like if i ever wanted to sell the asset there'd be an easier asset to sell um not that i look for houses for just capital growth but at the end of the day i'm in a, i'm wealth building so at some point i am looking at capital appreciation so i'm looking at when i'm looking at the welsh valleys am i going to get it there um, personally, even that valuation I told you about on my first one, I know that that house is definitely not worth 115 K <laughs> and you know, is um, so I feel that just by looking at that, that's an overinflated asset and the bank's happy to fund that asset, um, when it is overinflated. So when I'm looking at maybe more of a city based property, then I feel the capital growth is more sustainable rather than the Welsh valleys. Mm. That's a really interesting point. And like, I think looking at some of the, the percentages, I mean, well, of course, they agree with you. Um, the cities and, and places that are more popular are always going to have more. Um, that, that's quite an interesting point. I mean, you know, looking back at the deals that you've done, um, how so how did you fund most of these deals? Was it your own cash? Was it investors? Was it JVs? How, how did you grow so quickly? So yeah, I've used investor finance on two deals. The rest I funded myself and with a business partner on some as well. Okay, and you know, when it comes to working with a business partner or JV partner, any tips, advice, anything to avoid, anything to do? Um, I think the biggest issue with JV partners is I think people are scared to do something themselves. And um, you know, I've done it in loads of businesses. I've taken on business partners that I didn't need. Um, just because it felt, okay, cool, there's two of us to do it, so I'm splitting the risk. When, you know, some people don't share the same passion as you, I think you need to do hell a, lo a lot of research on the person you're going to go into business with because it's basically like a marriage. So, yeah, you need to ask uncomfortable questions. You know, you need to ask for, you know, what's their financial position? Um, have they had any financial history where things have gone wrong? Um, what's their, I don't know, what's their background? Uh, what's the even what's their circle of people because you know if if you look at somebody and and there are four or five people around them uh doing things you you don't agree with then is that person gonna align with your business values because if they're willing to bother with those sort of people or put themselves around those people then maybe there could be a disagreement down the line i think there's a lot of things that people don't take into account people are quite happy to go on um, a property course and jv with somebody that they've met with on that weekend which you know some of them some of those jvs um work out to be you know great business relationships down the line but i think a lot of people need to do a little bit more research before going into business with somebody because even people even friends things go wrong even family things go wrong people when money's involved uh 
people's true character come out. Mm. Where there's money and when there's humans, there's always, always problems like in the world, in the, in a macro and micro level. And I think that that point is really important about like being scared to do something because sometimes it, it may be, you know, you need to talk to some friends or go to a networking event and be encouraged or you pay a couple hundred quid for a mentor for a few hours and they push you. You don't have to give away 50% of, you know, your equity, whether it be business equity or actual property equity, because you're kind of fearful of doing it. Um, yes, I, I think it is um, less challenging if you have a good business partner. Two brains that you know, can be better than one. But like Dee said, you really need to think about like Get their credit scores. Um like hang out like hang out with their friends say hey man let, you know you're not going to nando's oh let me just uh, jump in along as well and if they're there doing things and talking about things that just don't sit then don't even entertain it and i don't know look, i mean yeah people say love at first sight and all this stuff i don't know about jv at first sight um i think <laughs> like it's it is a scary thought to think that people do just jv with someone straight off a course like that and i know you know, you know you can argue all day long do you need to know someone for a long time to really know them blah 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 but it's scary. I mean, do you think it's sensible JVing with someone like off the bat like, as soon as you've met them? Um, like I said, it can work both ways. You know, you can, I think you can quite quickly, you get a gut instinct on an individual if you meet them, you know, and you can see if your business values align, your goals align and just your life values align. If, I think if, if you can see and all those things tick the boxes, then it's a decision you need to make with yourself. You know, you can you can ask, like you mentioned, for each other's credit scores. You can ask um, uncomfortable questions. You know, if someone's um, if someone can't answer an uncomfortable question, then I'm telling you now, if things go wrong, there's going to be a lot more uncomfortable questions and and agree and conversations to be had if things go wrong, especially when money's involved. So when you ask a few uncomfortable questions, if you know if you receive someone's credit score and there's something on there that you don't like, and you ask a question and they get very defensive, then you need to think, okay, um, how is this person going to position themselves if we have a disagreement over money or something goes wrong? You know, and that's the thing. And when it comes to JVs, you know, like we just mentioned, um, it is hard to take that step <clears throat> on your own. But I believe, you know, real growth as an entrepreneur is, un is uncomfortable. But, you know, at them times in that feeling of being uncomfortable, at one point that will become comfortable as you progress. And I think it's more about self-belief. Um, it's easy, easy to become an entrepreneur now. People see someone on Instagram and they can set a business up for £12. You know, it's, it's quite easy to become, um, I don't know, an entrepreneur. And everyone's looking to keep up. It's like keeping up with the Joneses. Everybody in this sort of, you know, I'm going to see somebody on social media. But the difference is um, if a real entrepreneur um, is happy to be patient, these sort of overnight entrepreneurs want instant gratification. And it's because it surrounds us on social media and it is one of the hardest things. Everybody is seeking social approval from people they don't know. And as long as their social media presence life looks like they're doing well, they seem to be happy. And a lot of them deep down are quite insecure. So I feel that, you know, take your time, be patient. And you don't need to just jump into bed with somebody um, in a JV just because it's, it, it feels right at the time, you know, do a little bit more research because, you know, that's if you're going into business with someone, business should be for the long run. It shouldn't be for just right now. Yeah, I agree. Um, interesting quote from Marcus Aurelius. It never ceases to amaze me. We all love ourselves more than other people, but care more about their opinion than our own. 
and that's from like i don't know whenever stoicism started thousands of years ago and look how relevant it is today like super relevant today um and then on your point about jvs just to close that off people if you're gonna jv get a jv agreement written they're often bespoke they can cost anywhere from 400 to 20 grand however much you want to really spend on it but speak to a solicitor and get it done because it, it's vital you, you're going to need it um, it sounds really harsh but you're going to need it at some point to protect both of you involved d you mentioned something there about tenants you said that you know where you invest doesn't necessarily give you the cream of the crop you know the creme de la creme of tenants um this is something that you know when people speak about investing in these low value areas where you pull your money back out and you know they're great deals percentage wise you know you can't argue that tell me about your how you feel about the tenants you have um and you know if you think that like i mean have you had bad experiences with tenants um i've had a few i wouldn't say bad experiences but i've had a few experiences that i felt that I didn't need to have. And I think that it was um, one or two of my tenants, I, I felt I didn't really have a choice but to give them a chance. Um, you know, it was in the middle of lockdown. So, you know, uh, I did want to get somebody in, in the, well, there's two flats. I did want to get people in the flats. So um, I did give people a chance. And, you know, the people you give a chance sometimes moan about things they don't need to moan about, you know. So I feel that in other areas, and I'm talking like, like 20 minutes away from that specific area, um, I know that you can have queues of tenants lining up, but you've got 20, 25 people to choose from, and you can basically choose who you want as your tenant, whereas that specific area, um, it got to the stage where maybe it was because I, I did buy um, so many there that it got to a stage where I felt that I didn't have the choice that I wanted to have. And I had to give a chance, give someone a chance, basically. That's really interesting. And I think that also looks at, you know, the kind of stuff that I guess we're taught or well, we should be taught on day one, which is like, look at the area. And, you know, if it's a small village, are you going to have randomers moving into the area? Maybe, maybe, depending on the bigger picture. But, you you know, potentially, especially where we invest, it's very community driven everyone stays where they stay mam's over the road nan's over there um some like areas in the north so you're gonna have those same kind of people and actually i have a property and properties probably 20 minutes from there and i mean my last one had 54 viewing requests we did 29 viewings and had 10 offers um and that honestly it is literally 20 minutes from there maybe less and it's actually a house that you visited for me and you snagged although it was miles away from snagging um like so it, it's really important that people know you can still invest in low value areas but maybe you have to be even more careful than you do if it was london or birmingham or you know something like that um so you know right now we're in a weird space you know you've grown your portfolio they're all they're all tenanted or have you got one in refurb or um so i have one in refurb is now finished um needs a bit bit of cleaning up to do and uh, i was going to sell it but i'm going to keep it now so all the okay. rest of the tenant did okay so everything you know the portfolio is happy it's healthy it's generating income you know when when did you buy your last deal uh in the middle of lockdown so i think it was the second week of lockdown it was an auction purchase the one you just happened to like win at 
at guide price or something, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so t tell me about that deal again, because like it's it sounds it sounded pretty awesome when you told me about it. So yeah, so I seen it up for a uh, sale for forty five k. Actually, I think it was up for it was like thirty eight k or something. It was going for, and you know, I I had uh, obviously the other one revalued on the street for one hundred and fifteen k, and this one was already refurbed. Um, so it was the only thing that was the only issue was there was some sort of clause from the council to say that basically the person converted it from a shop to a house and he'd had a certain amount of time before uh, that the council could come in and make them change it back. I can't even remember what it was called. So I just basically had to take insurance to to stop that, but it was up in like two months and we was in the middle of lockdown. So the risk was pretty much, it wasn't any risk really. So I thought, okay, cool, I'll buy this. All I had to do was to basically turn the shop front into a window and a bit of render and it was done. So yeah, so basically <laughs> for, for 45K plus the, uh, you know, auction fees and that small job, uh, I had a, yeah, I had a pretty good deal there. <laughs> and and not every deal happens as easy as that, right? Uh, definitely not. Because to have a fully, I mean, when you told me about this deal, I was like, I, I just laughed. I was like, what? Like, how? Who? When? Because these deals do happen, um, and they can happen. But you need to be looking at every auction catalog. You need to be tracking everything that hasn't sold. You need to be using websites like EIG. You need to be looking at every single estate agent listing, everything that's marked as sold STC. You need to be in it to win it, basically. And you were, um, and you recognise the area, and you had the benefit of, <laughs> I've got a valuation here. You know, I mean, that property, how much did you spend on the refurb for the 45 grand property? So all in was about 5K because I put a, a new gas running in and because it was basically all electric. So um, when I decided to keep it... Um, in the Welsh valleys, I think that they, I don't think they could move in about a boiler. They, it's just, yeah. <laughs> you know, even though it's we're trying to, <laughs> yeah, we're trying to move to electricity. So, but I think that the fact that it, um, of the location and where it was, I think, yeah, it was more, I had more of a chance of renting it out the, um, with, with, with a boiler and a gas run. So, um, all in, I think it was about 5k. Um, so I was all in for about 50, maybe 51. So, um, like obviously we're in a bit of a uncertain time but I, I suppose the valuation was still being a good place i mean even if it got valued at 75k you should still pull out all of your money if my math is right Give yeah yeah so uh, yeah to be yeah it's it's, it's, it's in well, i'm in i'm in a good position with it so either way i'm I, you know I, that's why i don't mind keeping it i mean if you sold it you'd make a stupid amount of profit especially with the way the market is now so i mean you did what we should all be doing on every deal, which is you locked in profit when you purchased it. Because, I mean, the second you purchased that, if you did change the front, blah, blah, or to be honest, even if you did nothing, you could have given it to an agent for 30 grand or more and said, yeah, sell it to an investor. It's, it's already so cheap. And you've done, well, you need a deposit, but really you've done nothing. Um, deals like that, pretty awesome, huh? Yeah, I, I wish it was all like that, Tesh. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, mate. That is that is amazing. Okay, and so you haven't bought anything since then. Um, neither have I, probably for the same reason. Um, let's talk about the market. So right now we're recording this on Monday, the 24th of August, 2020. So people, if Boris falls off a cliff, ain't no one going to miss him. Or something happens crazy, then please, you know, put a bit of salt on this. But we're talking from today... D, what, 
where are we at right now? Things are selling for way above asking, way above end value when they're wrecks. Um, it's a madness. Talk to me about like what is happening now and then we'll move on to where we think we're going. Oh, I don't even know where to start, Tej. Um, <laughs> so uh, if you look at um, the current market, so I did mention this uh, previously. I think we've had a, loads of conversations about this, but you know, you're looking at houses. Let's say a house is valued at 100K. Um, some people are deciding to pay 120K for this £100,000 house. And then the valuer goes out and says, I need to you know, be a bit more conservative and take the current circumstances into play. And then end up downvaluing it to say 90K. So there's like a 20K gap. And, you know, if you look at this from a, from a first time buyer point of view, how many first time buyers have an extra thousand pounds, let alone 20,000 pounds. So if you look at sort of house sales and completions, I'd be very surprised. I think pre COVID one in three house sales actually completed. I, I honestly, I, I, I can't wait to see the figures to how many houses actually complete through this pent up demand phase that we're going through. Um, yes. If you look at the bigger picture, you know, we've had many conversations about this and it, what, what, what the government are doing, I know it looks good, but it just, it isn't, you know, if, if you look at things on a day to day basis, the amount of bankruptcies, you know, you could see if you just do some basic research without even looking at this from a macro point of view, you could literally see that things aren't looking good. And as much as you want to listen to um, people in property online, trying to broadcast all the good things that's happening in property, do you really think these incentives for stamp duty and permitted development would be in place if COVID didn't happen? You know, that's the question you need to ask yourself. Mm. So do you think then that, all this crazy buying and then you know then eventually as it moves into the valuation stage the disparity from purchase price to what the value of values are at is going to mean that like a lot of deals then fall out of bed but then they instead of going like back to being super cheap like they would if it was a normal sale they're actually just going to go back to market value and waste our time as investors and then like do you think that's gonna it's just gonna go back to market value um, it's, it's hard to say, you know, there's a lot of things going on right now. You know, unemployment is in a bad place. Furlough ending in October is evidently going to get worse. If you look at the amount of bankruptcies we're seeing, you know, like I mentioned, into the biggest shopping center chain's gone into administration. CDG, the biggest restaurant chain into administration. Companies like Hertz, 24 billion in debt. Monsoon, Victoria's Secret. I could just go on about this. It's happening every single day companies are falling into bad places. You know, never in history have we had so many companies gone into bankruptcy so quickly. And if you look at this, it, the housing market, when they go back on the market, my biggest issue with this is the availability of credit. So, you know, 75% of houses are purchased with a mortgage. Uh, so 75% so of house sales are purchased with a mortgage. So if the credit isn't available, to purchase houses how many houses are going to be bought and that, that's that's my biggest issue when they come back on the market uh, uh, what, what exposure do the banks have from a lending point of view hmm and so then i guess that's kind of the immediate future and then of course you've got furlough ending i saw some article today obviously it's all just you know sensationalist that up to three hundred thousand renters are at risk of losing their jobs when the furlough scheme ends, threatening to put a huge hole 
in landlords' finances. Um, obviously, a lot of what I guess you know you and I have spoken about and people are speaking about is house prices and them sort of dropping and things like that. Do you have any thoughts on how the rental market might be affected, i.e. our income? Yeah, you know, you got to look at, like I said, the big picture. So you, when, when we're in a situation, when we've been in a long, long-term debt cycle, you know, and with more corporate and consumer debt than we've ever had, you know, you, you're basically asking for defaults. And if you do lose your job, like it's all right in Wales, right? You can look at Wales and think, right, so you, they pay you up to two and a half K a month furlough. So the, the average wage in, in Wales is going to be completely different to London. So if you've got a quite a, you know, quite a good job in London and, and you're making between six and seven K a month, most people in the UK are living hand to mouth. So if you're, if your mortgage is over the sort of three, four K mark and you lose your job, how are you going to service the debt? You know, like if you look at debt, you know, the only, the only thing debt is good for is, yeah, you can grow your business with debt. Um, it can be cheaper than equity and it can mitigate your risk. But if you can't service the debt, then, then there's a problem. So I would say that we're going to probably have, this is probably going to be the worst year for corporate defaults in history. You know, COVID to me was just a reaction. You know, this is, these companies have been taking on records amount of debt because we've had a decade of low, low rates. You know, we, we was already in a bad place. Taking on debt isn't the problem. Taking on debt that you can't service is the problem. You know, these companies have over leveraged and, and they've been helped to keep the doors open. So this is a knock-on effect. So I 100% think the, the rental market will be affected. If you can't earn no money, you know, the first thing you're probably going to default on is your car loan. And then after the car loan becomes your rent or your mortgage. And then we've seen it happen before. You know, this is this is nothing new. It's, and this has been going on for a long time. COVID or without COVID, this was going to happen at some point. I just feel that COVID's fast-forwarded it. You know, it's just the way it is like... The central bank could alleviate a typical debt crisis by dropping, you know, the, the rates even lower. But really, how you can go negative, but when it hits rate zero, they have no choice. The banks have no choice but to start deleveraging because they can't look, they can no longer service the debt. Then you've got to think if they can print money so easily, then how do we know it's going to be a value when they when when they create it? Mm. And I mean, it sounds. You know, when you listen to these numbers and, and the, the names of companies, household names like some of the clothes we're wearing, some of the, the places, that, you know, that we eat out at, like they're being closed, they're being shut down, they're going into liquidation. They're, like, it's all quite um, scary if you really sit there and think about it. Does this mean we're going to have some sort of financial crash or depression? Like what is, you know, what's the bigger picture just for us as humans in this world i think that we will definitely have it'll be a depression um you know i know they've tried to advertise that we're in a recession like it was it was headline news but <laughs> surprise <laughs> but you know just like with business you know when income falls and it becomes less than expenditure and you'll get into trouble unless you have good savings and most people you know are most people's savings adequate for a downturn how many months could they survive you know, how exposed are the lenders? We've just seen some of the biggest companies, some of the companies that people think, you know, are well capitalized. They aren't. They couldn't survive four months. Some of these businesses have online business and they still couldn't survive. You know, some of these like Monsoon and Debons, they sell, they sell 
they put it online and they still couldn't survive a couple of months. You know, these, these businesses are looked at like good businesses, but um, I, I, don't, I personally don't agree with the bailouts. I don't, I think that people should have a responsibility. And if, you know, if you can't service the debt, then don't take it on. And if you, you know, if you can't service it, you should be allowed, you, they should let them fail. I don't think it's good business. And what, what does a depression actually mean? Cause I, I no one alive has lived through one, right? Cause the last one was like, the, during the railroads or something right when people had big mustaches and it was mm. black and white right well it, it depends how you look at it right so everyone's going to look at it differently so in the global financial crisis in 2008 um you know people some people would have looked at that like it was a depression to them um a, a global depression from a whole point of view i think it's going to be a stage where you know there's only a few ways to come out the back end of a long-term debt cycle and you know they're gonna you know it ideally interest rates should go up slightly but i personally i don't think interest rates will probably move much for the next 10 10 or 20 years you know the, the global bond market could force them to make a move but central banks are going to do whatever they can to keep them low you know the federal reserve stated that they don't plan on moving rates for the foreseeable future and, you know, we'll probably have an almost certain chance of negative rates before we see them rise one or two percent. Personally, I think it's, it's just a total misuse of monetary policy. But is a global depression is it's going to be bad because if there's no like most people are over leveraged. So people rely on debt. People rely on lending from some point of view to one run their business or to survive. Some people live on credit cards. A lot of businesses um, rely on debt and leverage to survive you know you've got car companies that have massive stock in loans you have property investors who um, gear their whole portfolio on at least pretty much 75 percent ltv so when you look at it from that point of view if, if if none of this is available or some of these lenders can't even service the debt themselves um it's, it's going to be bad you know and if um you know this it could, we could well hit um hyperinflation but i, I personally think that Central banks, as this is a global problem, um, are going to do wherever they can to, you know, be keep it to the obsessed two percent inflation um, <laughs> amount, and they're going to try and keep rates as low as possible to try and weather the storm. But you know, it, this is like just putting a plaster on an open wound, and every time the plaster fills up with blood, put another one on there. You know, it, 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 things it's, it's pretty unsustainable, and I think we've noticed that where when you look at the amount of money that we've printed, you know, from to print our way out of the financial crisis in 2008, we printed about $2 trillion um, in four years. And then they went and printed pretty much the same amount in a couple of months um, through the back of COVID. So when you look at the pro problem on a broader scale, um, you know, they wouldn't be doing these things. Um, the banks wouldn't be uh, showing their exposure by dropping loan to values, increasing deposits, giving down valuations if things weren't bad they you know all this thing about the banks are liquid yeah there's money everywhere because they're printing money but it doesn't mean that people can put the money to good use people can't people are struggling to, people were struggling to service the debt before this and that's why so many companies have failed you know if if if, if these big corporations thought we was going to have a v-shaped recovery why would they go into administration after four months of no no money this, this is how you got to think of it you know if if a V-shaped recovery is on the horizon, then and your your Debenhams, why would you why would you close down? Mm. And so then, for us as property investors, 
two questions. The first one is, should I buy a house now? If not, when do you think we can? Because I'm bored. I mean, you know I am. I message you this all the time. But, like, we, you know, some people are starting now. Like, some people have just got into it and they're ready to buy. Or, like, you and me, we're ready to continue. What's your What's your advice and thoughts on that based off the indicators from the world or the economy? I think as an investor, especially a property investor, people shouldn't be looking at this from a in a short-term basis, even though the typical, the BRR model is in and out, you know, within a short period of time. If, if it was me, I wouldn't be taking an investor's money right now and doing any sort of property deal with an investor's money, just because I'd be maybe worried that something does go that bad that maybe I couldn't service the debt. Um, I definitely wouldn't be doing a flip right now unless you could get in and out within months. Because like I said, I'm not even sure if a lot of these sales are going to be go, uh, become completion. So I'm trying to, unless the deal of the century comes in front of me on my laptop, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to stay away from it for the, for the time being. But, you know, if you're looking at it from a long-term point of view, then buy. You know, if you can find a deal and it works for you, then buy. I just wouldn't want to take an investor's money and promise them the money back with a return within 12 months, just in case something goes terribly wrong. And, you know, yeah, that, that's, that's why I would personally be worried about right now. But if you're going to spin it for the long term, which probably should be looked at like a long term investment, just like any investment, people shouldn't be, if you want to be in, in and out of things, then go and trade Forex, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, Corona has delayed. It, it frustrates me when people don't talk about property as a long-term investment. They're taking out, they're refinancing on a 25 to 30-year mortgage. How can you not look at it from a long-term point of view? It, it frustrates me. Mm. I think, you know, I think it can be quite difficult because maybe it's like at this sort of age of generation, you, you know it's a 25-year product, but you're kind of like, oh, you know, what's it ROI mean the first year? What's the valuation in the first year? I think I kind of, I look at it on a long term, but it's not, it's not natural for me to do that. You know, like it's, I guess because I've never been in a business or sort of thing before where it's been super long term. So it's quite unusual for me to be like, oh, wow, I'm going to have this house on this same mortgage for 20 years. Like, okay, mm. I'm going to be 20 years older <laughs> than it's, I, I find it quite abstract, but yeah, it definitely needs to be thought about um in that sense so then the second part of my question is for you and me as and, and other people many many people like us with portfolios mostly tenanted um you know argument's sake the portfolio is about 70 75 percent ltv um you know are there things we should be doing to protect from a crash depression whatever we want to call it that could be impending and, and about to doom us the things I would look out for is, you know, this this can't evict tenants for a period of time, rent holidays, mortgage holidays. I feel like it's encouraging like a smoke and mirror default. And I think that definitely understanding the tenants a little bit more, you know, what's, you know, how long are they anticipating to be in, in your property? I know people like to stay away and be as hands off as possible. You know, I'm one of those landlords that, you know, I'd rather be hands off, but you know, these people are going to be paying your mortgage and these people are going to be paying, obviously contributing towards your cash flow as well. So if you already have property, if you're over geared in your portfolio and you have any um, deals outstanding, then I definitely deleverage on the 
uh, when you refinance in the next deal, if, if, if it was me personally. My last refinance um, was at 50% LTV. Um, yeah, I just, when I seen what was going on, you know, the when I look at things, like the federal deficit's almost twice as big as the worst um, of the Great Recession in 2009, and it's getting worse. When I look at the amount of things that's going wrong, even before COVID, we had geopolitical tensions between China and the US. The investing space was already uncertain before COVID came into play. So for me, I, I, I wanted to deleverage my portfolio as much as possible, just in case something did go wrong in the first place. And so I would be deleveraging if I, if I was refinancing right now. Um, but, you know, the damage has been done. So it's, it's what you do from now. You know, if you already have a portfolio, then just look at look at yourself over the next, you know, 24, 36, 48 months and think, right, then if these houses or these these assets become a problem, let's have a look at the debt. Let's have a look how much it is. And, you know, how am I going to service it if things if they, I start having rent defaults and, you know, how am I going to service the debt? How strong is my cash flow? Um, that's what I'm looking at right now. You know, I'm looking at, you know, how geared am I and how, how am I going to position myself to make sure I can service the debt if things go wrong? You know, we might be able to sail through it fine, you know, and especially if people are buying the way they should be buying and they're getting, you know, off a buy to let between two and 400 pound cash flow off a small buy to let, you know, you should have allowed for, you know, um, if things go wrong, you, you've got enough money there to cover yourself if, if if one or two do start going wrong but you know people are going to need a place to live and even in a bad time in a downturn um tenants yeah they're going to need somewhere to live so they need to keep you happy to a certain extent but just be ready just in case things uh do go wrong you know mm. and, and i kind of what i'm hearing as well also is service that debt is also to stockpile cash and to not chuck it in investments mm. and keep it as liquid cash just in case is that is that right yeah, I definitely um, have some sort of cash reserve there. Um, I think people should always have some sort of cash reserve there just because, you know, recession or not a recession, things can go wrong. Business is business. So, you know, I think that cash reserve should be there. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, Hertz, they had 24 billion debt and they had a 1 billion cash reserve, you know, like over leveraged by 23 times. It's just, you know, you're asking for issues. Like if I, if I said that, that to you before they went bust, anyone could see from an outside looking in that, you know, there's something very wrong. <laughs> What's going on there? So, you know, it's just <clears throat> making sure that, yeah, you, yeah, maybe you have got cash reserves for one. And, uh, and two, if you invest in other assets, then, you know, uh, how long are you, are you happy to uh, leave your money in for a little bit longer? What's your risk appetite in, you know, because a lot of people I feel that don't, you know, they don't understand asset classes before they invest in them, you know, looking from an asset class from the outside, you know, um, or when you're watching, you know, if you see someone have some type of success from it, some people think, oh, you know, it looks appealing. And, you know, at that point, if it's financially viable and they have the money, people just jump in without doing any sort of research about it. So for me, before anyone invests in anything, they should have a good understanding, you know, and and have a very yeah, basically have a very good understanding of what they're learning and if they're learning it from the right source because you know it's easy to jump into something because it looks good you know everybody done it in 2017 with bitcoin and then now everybody hates it the ones who invested because they've done it because john down the road or down the supermarket told them that it was a good investment so honestly i i'd, I'd be looking at asset classes and making sure you understand them mm. 
that's a good point it's a very interesting times we're in and and actually you know everything you've just said and all the kind of um things you've mentioned about the economy for you what are your key indicators like economic indicators that show you this like what 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 makes you think you what you've said is going to happen or could happen so i i look at it from a from, from a global point of view right so you know like i'm debt to gdp ratio in the us is in excess of 100% and you know it's it, it's getting pretty pathetic and um you know when I, when you look at the currency supply expansion and you see how much money is being printed it was already unsustainable previously and unemployment's going through the roof now unemployment um is predominantly going through the roof because of what covid's done and companies have looked at this from a point of view of okay can my business run um sufficiently with less staff and less resources and they've they've noticed that they can so you know a lot of people is going to be laid off anyway and they need to uh you know they, they're already over leveraged with debt so for me i'm looking at it from a global point of view and when i look at the corporate and consumer debt in in astronomical numbers for me that doesn't look good um literally for me people don't look at things in a macro point of view and i literally everything i research <clears throat> is from a macro point of view is a massive shift in everything you know you got to look at the way the there's a new world that we was entering with or without covid there's been a change of commodity use so oil and gas isn't hasn't as much value um, going into the new world you know we're entering a world where we have ev ai blockchain all sorts of things are changing covid just fast forwarded the inevitable so you need to look at for one how much money they're printing to how much debt there is how much debt are people holding on their balance sheets you know and people are like i mentioned they're over leveraging everything for me debt's the biggest thing and people's behaviors and to me like you got to think right the last couple of years we've had this asset prices not even just the last couple of years it's just been overinflated for a long period of time you know a very long period of time the amount of money that's been printed you know the housing market's bull run has, has been due to massive currency supply expansion since 09 we printed our way out of the financial crisis single handedly that, that those sort of things to me it can only go on for so long so question then and this this might be an answer that takes hours in itself might not but let's say i am the uk government and you are well, i don't know someone um you loan me money, I piss around with it, as the government generally do, um, and then I'm now in debt to you, whoever you are, sovereign fund, whatever. Um, why can't I just say, okay, let's say I owe you 10 mil, all right, press press on on the printers, print 10 mil, here D, here's your 10 mil, we're out of debt. Why can't we do that? Just constantly, why can't we just print more money? Because if it was one country, we could do it because there's only one person to answer to. But if, if it was as easy as that, you wouldn't see places like Venezuela in hyperinflation, where some normal things you buy down the supermarket cost more than your monthly wage. This is so, you know, when you see countries in those sort of situations, um, this is why it isn't just, you know, you one country can't dictate what happens in a global uh, crisis. You know, there's back in 08, what Iceland did, you know, I think they they done things the right way. You know, they locked up their bankers. Um, the bankers had a responsibility, and they just locked them up. Um, you know, they 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 handle they they handle things terrible. Um, if it was up to me, I would let 
all the high street banks fail. I would let the big corporate five, four or five months without um, your normal um, revenue on a monthly basis, then you're not a good business. I would allow them to fail. I don't think they should be bailing out these huge companies. You know, American Airlines, um, now Hertz has gone bust. It's got the most debt on their balance sheet out of every other company in America. They're laying off a third of their workforce and they're just getting these silly packages that's bailing people out. I just don't, you know, I, to me, yeah, they should allow them to fail. It's just the way it should happen. You know, look at Japan. Japan had a crazy asset boom. Um, late 80s, early 90s, and they've never recovered. They've been in like a 30-odd-year recession because they inflated every single asset and they're trying to conquer previous highs. Now, Japan's a massive economy. It's a huge global economy. And I just think that it gets to a level where you just need to allow bad companies to fail and then the new ones to prosper and the better ones to come through. I think that is, you know, the theory of evolution applied to businesses and, and I think what really happens is there's some sort of, you know, brown bags, backhanders, you know, politicians in bed with corporations and dirty secrets and all this kind of stuff you have documentaries on. I think it's all real and I think that happens. And then what happens is companies like, for example, Monzo, Starling, they have to break through this government-backed floating all banks and all these big corporates instead of evolution killing them off. Because really... You look at evolution, you've got these high street banks now, they're like, oh, look at our app. We have pie charts in it. And you're like, bruv, Monzo had this two years ago. Like, Excel had this 10 years ago. What are you, why are you not pretending it's new? And they proper have adverts in it. And you just think, hold on a minute. If evolution was allowed to exist in the world of business, you would all be dead. And it would literally be Monzo, Starling, Tide, etc., etc., on your freaking high street, killing it as they do. It wouldn't be... Monzo maybe having to close because they're struggling because you know what I mean so I think that's a whole different podcast in itself and evolution being stifled by the world yes. but um we shall we shall reserve that for a future um, <laughs> for a future meetup right um so if you could have dinner with any three people dead or alive who would it be and why oh you put me on the spot <laughs> <laughs> I mean um, I did tell I did give you preparation like half an hour before the episode so I'm doing all right you know I'm, uh, Enough time. Um, I'd love to sit down with Elon Musk. Um, I think I, I love the fact um, that he's a forward thinker and he's trying to conquer actual um, problems that I think the world has. I think he tries to resolve issues that we may have going forward and tries to make things better. So I'd love to sit down with him to understand the way he thinks. Um, two would be Ray Dalio, um, another person. I love the way he thinks. I love listening to him. I think he has a good understanding on life from listening to him um and the third hmm it's hard to say the third could be someone just for fun hmm tupac Ooh, <laughs> i think those three at the same time would be an incredible discussion because tupac had views on the world mm. and corruption things like that and ray and and elon are kind of part of that that would actually be I think Elon and Tupac would hit it off, man. Like, they'd be in the corner just chilling, and then Ray would just be there sitting upright, just you know, uptight as he is. Like, that would actually be, that would actually be quite. What What would you eat with them? What food would you eat with them? Um, um either lobster or steak. 
Or, or both, come on. Yeah, well, yeah. if I'm with those guys, both. <laughs> you can't proper... pick the tab up. <laughs> <laughs> you're a proper GQ model, and it's straight to the steak and lobster. Um, what's the worst advice you've been given, if any? Um, when I was younger, I, I, I used to do music, and um, a lot of my friends at the time, I was definitely in the wrong circle of people. What and, genre? Uh, was it like classical or like nah, contemporary like dance? Yeah, it was hip hop. So, um, oh, wow. You know, but the, the friends I've come up with, they're all in places that I wouldn't want to be right now. So making that shift and changing my decisions changed my life. You know, they, to, they, was, they told me, you know, you're not going to, why, why are you doing this? You know, you're not going to be in the right places. You're not going to make it to the areas you need to be. Um, basically wanted me to continue to be around the, you know them and you know i've been in that lifestyle mentality and you know i was surrounded by many that wanted to live to the fullest but it's not about having the lifestyle as such it's about maintaining what you have for a long period of time and the majority live it short term to a high level but normally sustain it and you know at the time i was going at a rate that i wasn't uh you know i wasn't happy with the results so i had to switch it up my circle and habits to tolerate with my goals and they were telling me that i couldn't achieve nothing and you are only as good as the people around you. So for me, people telling me, giving me advice to move in circles and do things that I was never going to, there was no longevity. And that's the worst advice personally that I've been given because I feel like you shift responsibility to other people. And, you know, I don't believe in that. Dash them to the side, man, people like that. Um, right. So you have a, a, I don't know, a, a platform, a club, a networking community uh, called the 5am club now i remember when you first started this i don't know how long ago it was lockdown just is never ending but you know at some point not that long ago um you were doing these kind of calls with i don't know 10 20 30 you know a certain amount of people and then out of nowhere you got this slick marketing website there's so many people doing it you're doing fit i was like huh i was like what when did this become this? Like you literally just, it grew so quickly. So tell us, what is the 5am club? Well, originally um, in the middle of lockdown, you know, I felt I was getting a little bit too comfortable. I was waking up a little bit later than usual. So I just wanted to do something that took me outside my comfort zone. So I called a few friends. There's like three or four of us originally jumped on a call at 5am twice a week and just talked about business and how we could help each other, obstacles, just had a chat. And then because People liked the fact of being up at 5 a.m. We were sharing it and then more people joined. It just got to a stage where it was, you know, we couldn't manage it because there was so many people talking. We couldn't really free flow on conversation on Zoom. So we asked one of the people that was getting up to do a small presentation on NLP. And um, from there, I started to guest speakers each week that could add some sort of value. And yeah, ever since we've grown it to you know, a nice size um, of members. And now we're looking at doing all sorts of stuff, you know, physical events, uh, ski trips, all, all different types of things. So, yeah, it's grown to a nice stage now. And I think we've had some great speakers on there. Um, I always <coughs> guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely, Tej. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I feel that people always take something away from it. You know, they, they definitely learn at least something new or take some sort of notes down off each speaker. They always learn something different. And that's the main knowledge and network. Hmm. And, like, how many members have you got now? Uh, there's about 160 something members. Um, so 
in the mornings though we don't get 160 people wake up uh, so we added a rewind feature that they could watch back the episodes and sessions whenever they wanted to and some people definitely take advantage of the the rewind feature and since people's gone back to work uh yeah we see more people viewing the rewind than we do on the calls <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah like the rewind feature is awesome and actually you've had such a wide range of guests um I need to get on a rewind feature because like you've had some really cool, cool people and, and the feedback you see on social media about it is awesome. And you know, yeah, not everyone gets up at 5am, but boy, you get a lot of people waking up, you know, like, you know, to, to start a business like this, you know, like a, a platform in itself is hard, but then to do it when there's also such a commitment is even harder. I mean, I'm a 7am club guy, but still it's, you know, it's hard. And actually you've got an event. I think by the time this is released, the event will have gone. Um, so yeah, congratulations on that. And how can people like learn more about the 5am club? Where should they go? So you can either follow me on Instagram. I post about it quite a lot, D underscore Ludlow. And, um, or you can go to the website, join the 5am club.co.uk. Um, you see a few videos, um, on the, on the landing page, but to get inside the portal, you need to be a member, but there's enough on there to give you a good, um, bit of information about what the 5am club is and where we want to take it. Amazing. Cool. D, thank you so much for coming on the Tej Talks podcast. Thanks for the invite, Tej. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.